Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Today's Halloween special will be on The Exorcist, a cursed production. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We have a very special spooky edition of the podcast for Halloween Day. We're doing something a little different. How about you explain it, Jim? Well, I thought it'd be fun to not just like pick a bunch of movies and analyze them, but instead let's talk about The Exorcist and the cursed production and how it's a cursed movie, a lot of people believe. And I thought it'd be a lot of fun and make this episode a little more theatrical. We're dressed up if you're watching on Spotify or YouTube. I'm dressed up as Donnie Darko. I love it, by the way. Yeah, with the skeleton costume with the gray sweatshirt and Anthony's Pete Mitchell Maverick over there. Oh yeah, I have. I feel the need. The, the need, need for speed. Tom, I, Tom I Cruise reference out of the way already. Yeah, yeah, I feel extremely confident wearing this outfit. I have the the jumpsuit and the aviator sunglasses, and I feel extremely cool, dude. Low key, you look like Pete Mitchell. You, Thanks, you, you man. look like Tom. I just need to get. <laughs> I need to crooked make my front two teeth crooked, you then need I'll to look clean like clean shave uh, with the haircut. Right now, you literally look like Pete Mitchell. Yeah, I, I, I just like the perfect length for the Maverick hair. I'm not I think. even kidding. Look at this guy, spitting image. Thanks, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. But we love Halloween, and this is our final episode of October, and we're really excited to dress up and do this special episode. And I think it'll be a lot of fun because there's so much to talk about with The Exorcist, and you won't necessarily had to have seen the movie The Exorcist to have fun enjoying this episode because it's going to be a mixture of true crime. There's going to be some dark things that we talk about that happened in real life as well as most of it is speculation and, you know, kind of just people having fun with what was happening in terms of, like, the things that happened on set. But there were definitely deaths that were somewhat supposedly related to the production of the film. And The Exorcist, you've heard us talk about it many times. It really is... Uh, holds up to its legendary status and still has aged well, I think. And I think it is the most terrifying film ever made. But it had a cursed production. And a lot of people who worked on the film say that so many crazy things happened. There were a lot of deaths involved with it. So uh, there's speculation that, you know, maybe working on such a dark story with demonic themes and Catholic Christian Christianity themes, maybe something happened there. There's too many things and weird coincidences. And I think it... It's kind of odd. A lot of it's really odd and kind of like, just like when I watch the movie, I feel like, oh my God, are demons real? And then when you read this stuff, you're like, well, is this, are demons real? Just like the movie. Yeah. And The Exorcist, it's the scariest movie of all time. You know, it's debatable now because we're so desensitized to horror. But if you like went we back are. and saw this in 1973, I still think it's a terrifying movie. But not only is it the scariest movie of all time, the cast and crew would say for other reasons besides the film, but what happened on the production. It took twice as long as scheduled and cost almost three times the initial budget. Some deaths and accidents during production have held to a belief that it was cursed, as well as a connection to a real-life serial killer, who we'll talk about, a man who killed his entire family, then himself, different incident, and then a massive fire that happened during production to one of the main sets of the movie. So there are all sorts of bits of true crime, freak occurrences that are connected to the production of this film. And there's so much to talk about that I'm really excited to dive into. One thing that's really interesting is William Friedkin, the excellent director of this film, he was an atheist when he went into production on the movie. And then the experience he had on researching it and post production he actually watched an exorcism happen in real life like a few years later and both the experience making this film and seeing that real life exorcism has turned him into a devout catholic and he actually made a documentary like 15 years ago about that exorcism and how it changed his perspective where he thought it was just all you know it was all bs and then he had these two experiences of making the film and seeing that in person and it changed like his life and his idea of if heaven and hell even exist, if if religion's even real. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I did not know about that. Yeah. Now, again, I just want to give you all a warning. We will be talking about true crime events that happened and are connected to the production of The Exorcist in the film itself. So be prepared. If you can't stand that kind of stuff, I recommend maybe not tuning into those segments or tuning out when, when we're talking about it or, or whatever. But I just want to give a warning for that. Be prepared. 
episode. Now, before we dive into The Exorcist, I just want to talk about some other cursed movies that we got some fun information about before we dive into, you know, just the scariest movie of all time. How now, about you tell us about the first one? So the first one on the list of other scary, uh, other cursed productions besides The Exorcist, starting with Rosemary's Baby. Obviously, we all know that director Roman Polanski's pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, the movie star, was murdered by Charlie Manson's clan a year after the movie's release. Producer William Castle would also suddenly suffer kidney failure after receiving hate mail about the film. And the film's composer died of a sudden blood clot at the age of 38. Man, that's a lot of deaths surrounding that film. That's And that also deals with the rise and ascension of... The devil, 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 the devil's son. So interesting. Interesting. Our next cursed film is The Wizard of Oz. The first major uh, cursed story is pretty famous, and it's about this scene happening in the background. And there's one shot in the film where people think there's a silhouette uh, projected onto the background through a light behind the actual set of someone hanging themselves. This has been disputed back and forth. Some people think it really is a crew member hanging themselves, and then people have denounced it as it's just some random thing in the background. So there's really a lot of speculation about that. No one really knows if it's real or not. I doubt it's real, but it does look, if you look at the images, it looks pretty odd. It kind of could pass as someone uh, hanging themselves with a noose of some kind. Mm -hmm. Very spooky. But also, the film got off to a bad start when Buddy Epson, the original Tin Man, had to be replaced after the aluminum dust from his makeup coated his lungs, forcing him to sit in an oxygen tent for two weeks to recover. Oftentimes, makeup and prosthetics back then were used with very dangerous uh, materials, chemicals, powders. Just like the paint of homes, lead paint. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And the, the snow in this movie was actually asbestos. Nobody knew it was really bad for you back then. And so all the snow you see in The Wizard of Oz is actually just asbestos that they're pouring all over the actors. Look great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bert Lahr, the Cowardly Lion, also had to wear a 90-pound costume made of real lion skin in 100-degree heat. No one, It does look real. It looks great, the, yeah. the, the fabric. I always thought it was fake, but that makes a lot of sense. And also, doing that in 100 degrees must have been terrible. Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Witch, suffered worst of all. Her costume caught on fire after a stunt gone wrong, giving the actress second and even third degree burns. Complicating things, her green makeup was copper-based. Like I said earlier, very bad materials used for these things, which could have made her injuries even worse. So it had to be removed with alcohol before she could get proper treatment after the burns. Things got even worse when Hamilton's stunt double suffered burns and scarring on her legs from a surprise explosion. <laughs> Several flying monkeys were also hurt when their flying wires snapped, and Toto was injured when an extra stepped on her paw. Quite a chaotic production. I also didn't know that Toto was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> now, the next cursed film on this mini list is The Passion of the Christ. Oh, yeah. Jim Caviezel played Jesus in his last moments on Earth in The Passion of the Christ, and the actor ended up with a lung infection, pneumonia, and hypothermia. His makeup gave him skin infections, and he generally didn't enjoy having a super tight crown of thorns on his head while he carried around a real 150-pound cross. Cavisa was also struck by lightning. Crazier still, assistant director Jan Michelini was also struck by lightning twice. That's pretty wild for three strikes of lightning on one film set. That's insane. We're also getting some of this information from Looper.com. Yeah, I read that. I've read about that film, and it it like nearly killed Cavisa. And Cavisa was actually also an atheist, then after making that film, he became a devout Christian. Mm-hmm. So he um, grew into Christianity as he was making that film. So another instance of someone like finding religion while making a movie. Pretty wild. Insane. And then like, and- yeah, you hear that story with a lot of scientists, too, who are most scientists are atheists and they go into or mathematicians. And then they're they're going into the depths of science and math. And then they find out on the other side that like they found God in a lot of ways or just like they've got like a, a, a new uh, belief perspective and perspective on life. Well, that's really interesting. I had a similar experience where it's not, I didn't have like a moment, but I just sometimes think about the concept of how big space in the universe is. And I, there's that ar- the argument of like, oh, everything was just made from the big bang from these tiny particles that exploded and started forming the universe. But like, where did those particles come from? Where was the space where these particles were sitting inside? Where did Nobody that come knows. from? Nobody so knows. So I think it's, it's like, it's so like, 
I don't know. It seems too restrictive to just say everything's based on science. And so there's got to be, I don't know. I feel going to be coming for you now. Yeah, I know. But I feel like, where did all that, where did that stuff come from? I'm just happy to accept that nobody knows shit about fuck. Yeah, that's how I, I go, ultimately, that's yeah. That's how I go through life. Yeah, that's what I think. Nobody I saw, knows anything. I, I think like, someone was telling me that they got in an argument with someone and this, this person was saying like, oh, it's been proven by science that like religion is, or anything isn't real or any higher power isn't real. And then I'm just, and I would say like, okay, prove it. Not that you're not a, not no, that yeah, you're I'm a not a religious person, yeah. but like when you think about stuff, it's like, no one knows. Nobody knows nobody anything. Nobody knows. Yeah. And just the size of the universe is just incomprehensible. Yeah, well, let's move back into our, I first. think we're, I think it's like the men in black, the end of men in black. That's where we are. <laughs> we're just marbles. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the next curse film, Anthony. Poltergeist, the great Toby Hooper slash Steven Spielberg horror film. I love this movie. However, some believe the poltergeist curse began with the scene when the mother falls into a pool and is surrounded by skeletons. So according to actress Jo Beth Williams, when they were filming that scene in the moment, she assumed that these dead bodies that resurfaced in the muddy water were just dummies and prosthetics and fake bones, fake bones and stuff. And then... While they were filming the scene, obviously doing multiple takes and setups, she was told that they were actually real corpses in the water with her. So all the, those dead bodies in the water in that famous scene are real corpses. And the, they used real bodies because they were cheaper than buying or making fake dummy bodies that looked realistic. So they just bought bodies at the morgue, I guess. And use them in that scene, which is absolutely terrifying and also pretty messed up that she wasn't even told beforehand that she was going to be swimming in water with a bunch of dead bodies and corpses. I would say no to that. You know how you can d donate your body to science after yeah. you die? You think you can donate your body to a Spielberg production? <laughs> <laughs> can I just be in the next indie movie? I'll <laughs> just please use me. <laughs> um after that creepy scene, even more weird stuff started to happen to the people involved with the franchise. For example, Dominique Dunn, who played the oldest daughter, Dana, was strangled to death by her boyfriend at the age of 22. Hoping to ward off evil for the sequel, actor Will Sampson performed an exorcism on the set of Poltergeist 2, but apparently that wasn't enough. Within a few years, actor ja Julian Beck died of stomach cancer at the age of 60, and Sampson himself died of kidney failure at 53. Perhaps most shocking, Heather O'Rourke, the they're here little actress. They're here. She died of cardiac arrest due to a misdiagnosed intestinal condition just a few months before the release of Poltergeist 3. Sadly, she was only 12 years old, That's so horrible. such a tragedy. Unfortunately, the curse was not done. Richard Lawson barely survived a cr plane crash that killed 27 people in 2009, and Lou Perryman was viciously murdered by a car thief. So quite a lot of disturbing instances and stories for that film. Next cursed film on the list is The Crow. The Crow is best known for the tragic death of its star, Brandon Lee. The son of the legendary martial artist and movie star Bruce Lee, Brandon was killed by a lead tip of a dummy bullet, which had been placed in the pistol weeks before, that was lodged in the prop gun. When the blank went off, it shot the tip into Lee's abdomen, and he died 12 hours later. I wonder if that was foul play. I'm sure there was an investigation. There, but... I bet there's never a culprit or anything. anything yeah, because I've never. But like for same thing with the Alec Baldwin Baldwin incident. That but happened. that was an actual real bullet, I believe. Yeah, this was the Alec Baldwin one. Lead tip of a dummy bullet. Lead tip of a dummy bullet. Maybe it must have been a mistake. I guess. Sounds like it. Yeah, that's so sad. He would have had a huge career. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next up, we have The Omen, which I think is a really incredible horror film. Producer Harvey Bernhard felt that the film might be risky and later said the devil was at work and he didn't want that film made. Before the shoot began, Gregory Peck's son committed suicide. Shortly afterward, two planes carrying cast and crew were reportedly struck by lightning. And things got especially creepy when the trainer in charge of the baboons was killed by a tiger a day after the monkey attack sequence. Also, special effects artist who worked on the decapitation scene was involved in a terrible car wreck, and while he survived, his passenger did not. In fact, she was, she was decapitated. And according to some stories, though others understandably skeptical, the accident took place near the Omen, near the town called Omen, with O-M-M-E-N, that's how it was spelled, right by a sign that read 66.6 kilometers. 
that's really odd. That's such a crazy freak occurrence. Also, so many instances of struck like lightning striking. I I don't I don't know anyone who's ever encountered a lightning strike ever. It's pretty wild. Do you know pretty anyone? Wild. I don't know anyone at all. Now that we're done with our short other list cursed. of cursed films, let's get into the most cursed film with The Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist came out. Well, in- actually, don't you think The Flash is the most cursed film of all? Yeah, uh, maybe. <laughs> might be. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> now, The Exorcist came out in 1973, directed by William Friedkin based on the novel by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the screenplay, starring Ellen Bernstein, Max von Sydow, Linda Blair, and Lee J. Cobb, as well as Jack McGowan, Jason Miller, and Kitty Wynn. The so first... I'm sorry, Jason Miller, the priest? Jason Miller plays he, Father um, Karras. His, his son is Jason Patrick. Jason Patrick? Yeah. Oh, no way. So if you, if you think about it, they actually look pretty similar. Oh, yeah, I have yeah. no idea. Now... The Exorcist is full of so many odd occurrences, deaths, untimely deaths, crazy true crime stories that are connected to the production of the film in different ways. The first instance of a cursed incident for The Exorcist was a reported premiere of the film The Exorcist when it was being shown in Roma, in Rome, Roma, in a theater located between two churches. During a huge lightning storm was the premiere set. While the movie was playing, one of the church's 400-year-old crosses was struck by lightning and dramatically fell to the middle of the plaza. How do you explain that? If it actually happened, I have no idea. I, I mean, no it idea. could— Obviously, like, the crucifix was acting as sort of a baton, which was attracted by— But of the, all nights. Of all nights. But that's, what, that's what's so weird about it is, like, yeah, I mean, I totally understand, like, something— pointed and tall in that city during a storm it's going to attract lightning it's going to be a place where it might hit but to be that night of all nights during during the the actual damage like the playing of the film like that's so weird spooky that is so weird in italy's defense in major cities especially like rome there are churches every all block over so like obviously like any movie theater would be in between. 600 crucifixes were struck so, by like, so like obviously it's the movie theaters in between churches <laughs> <laughs> so i got italy's back there so that explains that but still like why why would they put a movie theater between two churches yeah. there they're everywhere it, it's actually both the church and a movie theater yeah. <laughs> it's like cinema paradiso <laughs> so that's why there are churches so close to the movie theater um but still very spooky stuff very odd of all nights very weird to have a crazy lightning storm very spooky want to get to the next one there was a lot of mishaps with the actual set of the exorcist especially the mcneil home so the mcneil home is where um the lead actor and her daughter live now the entire set of the mcneil home actually caught on fire and burned down and they had to build the set a second time Act, and nobody knows what caused the fire. There's no trace, and there's no definitive explanation for how the fire ever started. But what's even weirder is that Reagan's bedroom, that part of the set, remained untouched after the fire. Really interesting. I've heard rumors that it was caused by a bird flying into a circuit box. So that's actually a dispelled rumor oh. because there's a story that William Friedkin said in an interview that he actually watched the bird fly into the circuit box and set and catch on fire and they put it out. Mm-hmm. So it happened in front of people that that happened. But the the house burned down while no one was there. Very interesting. The cool thing about this production in this in this house is it hap- they built it in Washington DC. Yeah. And that alleyway is really there. The steps are really there. So they had to build it a second time. But if you look at yeah, if you look at it, that's a great point. If you look at the shots of that alleyway and of the staircase when when the, the private investigator detective is investigating the scene you that's the, multiple that, that's the house that they filmed in the exterior house right at the steps like they actually did build that there so it, and that's what really helps add to the realism of that film mm-hmm. now the bad part about this curse besides you know the burning down the set it took six weeks to rebuild it and shut down production for over a month which that's is bad. not good news for a production fortunately this became one of the most successful movies of all time when it came out. it was the most successful movie of all time when it came out at, yeah when at its the, run was done so it made plenty of money to make up for that but yeah. at the time you do not want 
a shutdown of six weeks during the middle of filming a major film. To put into perspective how much movie this made, it made more than... How much money it made. Yeah, how much money... What did I say? How much movie it made. <laughs> it made so much movie. It made so much movie because it's a movie. <laughs> so It's a movie. <laughs> um, it made so much money that if you compare it to It Chapter One, which was a massive success, still nowhere near the box office of The Exorcist. In terms of inflation? Yeah, because even if you It Chapter One made 700 mil. But if you inflate the, the box office of The Exorcist, it's uh, over a billion. Wow. So for a rated R horror movie... I mean, I can't think of a horror movie ever topping that still to this day. Mm-hmm. So very impressive. And because of all the mishaps with the set, the, a Jesuit priest named Thomas M. King in Washington, D.C. was actually hired, and he was asked to bless the set. At first, he was skeptical, but when he was speaking with the crew and the director and her, hearing about the stories and odd occurrences, he decided to bless the set. So they waited for that to happen. And then once it was blessed, they felt comfortable continuing filming. I mean, if I was in charge of this production, I would give in to superstition. Oh, yeah. Like, Can we have a priest here every day? I would have done that something. too, like, yeah. Even if you don't believe in it, just like just in case. You never know because things keep happening. Moving on to other odd occurrences. When this movie came out, it was such a shock to the system of audiences. Just like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho was. People never seen that kind of violence of a murder being taken place on camera before. A lot of things, especially the sexuality of that film, no one ever seen anything like that in a big block. Gently in a bra, yeah. That was new. Now, The Exorcist turned that dial up even more, and people had never seen anything close to this film's disturbing nature. Scenes, yeah. You know, in terms of Reagan being possessed and the makeup and the projectile vomiting, the twisting head, the violence, the the, the stair crawl, the, the crawl, the uh, staircase crawl, yeah, yeah. The, the the floating body, the moving bed. No one had ever seen anything really like that in a big blockbuster film. And even like the this. voice of the demon, exactly, so, so disturbing. Audience members around the world were reported fainting, vomiting, leaving screenings early, walking out of the theater, and apparently, at one showing of the film, a woman was so stressed out and frightened that she passed out. And broke her jaw on the floor. She sued the production, sued Warner Brothers, saying insidious subliminal messages caused her to lose consciousness. Her lawyer <laughs> came up with that. <laughs> Warner Brothers settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, but we bet it was probably a good amount of money. Yeah. And what's really special about that? <laughs> super special. No, the, about the effect it has on people. Like the power of film is amazing, but. There's actually a movie out right now, Terrifier 2, and there's like stories of people like throwing up in the theater. Handing out barf bags. Yeah. But that's because it's so gory. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like serious, intense mutilation. And obviously anyone might will get sick. And I'm sure there are easily uh, plenty of people who will actually physically get ill. But it's I because, probably would. Yeah. It's because of like you're watching like corpses, like people's bodies being torn apart and, and really stir- disturbing gore. Whereas this, it doesn't, this movie doesn't really, it's not that. It's like the fear it elicits in. That's what's so scary about it. It's not relying on shock and crazy gore and like tearing through flesh and all that. It's like the scenes and the tension and the conflict and what's happening on screen. It's more terrifying than any amount of gore I've ever seen. And I think that's what's really remarkable about the film and why it was so effective. I I still think this is one of the scariest movies of all time. And I know a lot of people I see in movie Twitter or TikTok Twitter – I mean movie TikTok and just – movie um film people talk, yeah and, and film influencers and, and and articles written about movies they they don't think the exorcist is scary and i think yeah because there's a desensitization desensitization but also where are the they audience. watching it are they watching it on the laptop exactly yeah. but i mean I, I feel like if you watch the exorcist in a movie theater and you really just zone into the film it's one of the most terrifying experiences you'll ever have we we had we the luxury that. of yeah. we saw it on film an original film prints like five years ago in a movie theater. On Halloween. Such a great experience. And we went with even, Andrew. Yeah, even though I saw it 10 times, it was still terrifying. And I, I it was the most scared I've ever been. One of the most fright, frightening experiences I've ever had in a movie theater. Same. And it's, it's still, to this day, one of the most memorable experiences I've had in a cinema. And I had seen the film many times before that. But even still, watching in the theater, like any movie, it really elicits a different experience. And... You don't have your phone to distract you. You're not like watching it in your living room. There isn't the light on in the kitchen. Like the theater's dark. The sound's really loud. The screen is huge. And 
the the images the popcorn's are Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> the seat is sticky. <laughs> the peanut M and M's are great. <laughs> I can only imagine how intense it was to see it back then in theaters for the first time when nothing had ever been made like this, not even close to like this. And so I can totally see, and it's very understandable why people had such visceral reactions to the film. All right. I think I skipped one of them, one of the ones that you added about the author. You want to you bring Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> I was actually planning on saying that next. Go for so it. So author William Peter Blatty, he experienced strange activity while writing the novel, which is based on true events. So his wife believed that she saw a hairbrush float in thin air. Blatty at first didn't believe her until he personally saw his telephone do the exact same thing. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Pretty spooky Pretty stuff. Spooky. He might be just trying to sell a book, though. It's great press. Great press. It's great press. And Exorcism is great press great for press. movie and book, especially <laughs> back then. Let's move on to a serious situation that happened with this film where there is a connection between the exorcist and a convicted murderer who could be a potential serial killer or was a serial killer. Now... You all remember the scene where Reagan is having the shock treatment and they have technicians, radiology technicians and doctors there. And that scene, what freaking didn't like a lot of great directors is you have real people that work those professions to bring a lot of realism to the scene, bring that real that real jargon to the scene, whether it's medical jargon, radiology jargon, all kinds of stuff. And so that you have like and the, the behavior. Re- yeah, realistic situation of how you would go about doing this to a person because if you have a technician that they know exactly what to do whereas if you have an actor you're like they'll be like what is this machine now one of those extras one of the who has speaking dialogue in this film he wasn't an actor he's just an extra his name is paul bateson and he is a convicted murderer and potentially a serial killer now and he's to clarify he's the guy with the light beard that's what uh, he looks like in the film so paul bateson was the only suspect in a New York series of killings of homosexual men known as the Bag Murders. He's also known for his appearance as an extra in the 1973 horror film The Exorcist and for partly inspiring another film of the latter, Cruising, starring Al Pacino. Oh, wow. That's another Friedkin movie. Exactly. Now, Bateson was a radiological radiological technician at the New York University Medical Center where he was a well-liked and respected person by his colleagues in late 1972 bateson appeared as an extra also speaking dialogue in the exorcist he performed on camera along with others a cerebral angriography in what became one of the most famous and disturbing scenes of the film the one in which reagan played by linda blair is medically examined to determine whether or not her strange behavior caused by demonic possession can be scientifically explained bateson's drinking eventually increased around the time of the film airing and releasing prompting the NYUMC to fire him in 1975. He began living odd jobs, such as a light repairing, light repairman, cleaning apartments near his home in Greenwich Village, and taking tickets at a pornographic theater. Now let's get to the convictions and the murders. In the early hours of September 14, 1977, Bateson met Addison Verrill, a reporter who covered the film industry for Variety, inside a Christopher Street bar named Badlands. Verrill went back to Bateson's place where they had sex. Then Bateson killed Verrill. Bateson was convicted of the murder and served 24 years in prison until his release in 2003. Bateson was also the only suspect in the bag murders, though never charged or convicted. They just didn't have enough evidence and it just ended up being an unsolved case. But he was the only suspect in this serial killing rampage. If he was responsible for the bag murders, Bateson would presumably meet his victims at gay bars, charm them to a secluded place, and kill them by unknown means. Afterward, he would dismember them and place the body parts in plastic bags that he'd dump in the Hudson River. Now, he was the main suspect for this because these plastic bags were from medical facilities, which he had access to. Oh, man, it makes sense. And so because he was already a convicted murderer, murderer, he was the main suspect because he, at the time of when these murders were occurring, he had access to those bags or those kinds of bags. That's uh, very similar to the killer and cruising and 
Pacino plays the detective who is put on the job to go undercover and scout these bars to try and find the serial killer in New York. So this movie, one of the extras in the film, is a convicted murderer and potential serial killer. Man, I was like just sitting in on the back of my seat listening and the edge of my seat listening. I saw you. You were leaning forward more. You were getting closer and closer. This is insane. It's crazy. Pretty intense. Terrible, tragic situation. Terrible. Yeah. That's not even half of what's going on in this movie. Well, how about we'll take our intermission. Let's do it. And then we'll get back into it. And I thought I'd we'd do something fun and different with our intermission. And Anthony agreed and thought it was a cool idea if I read (laughs) a horror short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast besides using our coupon codes is to share us with your movie friends and family members and become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast to get awesome perks like personalized videos, personalized messages, $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons get access to our Discord. We interact with you every day and have watch parties, but it only costs as little as $2 to sign up for Patreon. $25 and $100 tier patrons also get their own custom episode. You pick the topic, we do it for you. $100 tier patrons, you are the chosen ones. You are an executive producer at the end of every main episode. You get a personal watch party. And after three months of being in that tier, you get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. Patreon is the reason why we can do the show full time. So thank you so much for your support around the world. This Halloween special of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our good friends at manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost. That's one word at manscaped.com. Get your hands on the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer for 20% off. Their entire site will be 20% off in free shipping with that coupon code. The Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer is skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM, waterproof, built in light, wireless charger. This is the ultimate accessory to your grooming needs. You can use it in the shower if you want. It's insanely effective and just great technology, great design. It's sleek. Sexy. I love it. Also, Manscaped's boxer briefs 2.0 are beyond comfortable. Highly, highly recommend getting them. They have all sorts of cool designs, sizes, as well as they got a little extra space for your jewels down there. Guys, you'll be extra comfy in them. Trust me. Manscaped also has deodorant, 2-in-1 shampoo, conditioner, body wash, everything you need for your toiletries, grooming needs. Head over to manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost. That's one word. At checkout, you'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. This Halloween special is also sponsored by the spookiest place to get your movie posters. Movieposters.com. Use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. <laughs> Movieposters.com has a gigantic selection of every movie and TV show imaginable. So whatever you want, they got you covered, as well as, believe it or not, framing, backlighting, whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com can handle it. <laughs> Again, for all your poster needs, go to the spookiest place online, MoviePosters.com. And use our promo code Raiders10. Or else. Now, for our intermission horror short story The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. True, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How, then, am I mad? Hearken and observe how heaven healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Mad men know nothing, but you should have seen me. 
You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him, and every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously. For the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so... It was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night I had felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no, his room was as pitch black with the thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers, and so I knew he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it in steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when the thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in the bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or grief, oh no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept in, it was welled up from my own bosom, deepening with a dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in his bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them costless but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he has been trying to comfort himself with those suspicions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray like the thread of a spider, shot from the crevice and full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now I have not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses. Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. 
I knew that sound well too. It was the beating of the old man's heart, and increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder. Every instant, the old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of the old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still, but the beating grew louder and louder. I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha <laughs> ha! When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been around. Information had been logged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled for what I had to fear. I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached. I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I found that noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all, continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard. They suspected, they 
They knew they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now again, hark louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the place. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous hearts. That was a great reading of a great Edgar Allan Poe story. I remember reading that in school, in high school. Years ago. I think yeah. I, I think we read it in middle school. Maybe middle school, yeah. I remember that. Maybe even earlier. Great horror short story. <clears throat> you can, uh, let's get back into the... You, the need, you might need a break after all that. <laughs> 20 minutes straight of... It was like a little acting performance, yeah, too. It's, uh, it's pretty fun. Very emotional. Pretty fun. Maybe we should start a podcast doing that. <laughs> <laughs> we have two already. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But let's get back into The Exorcist, and let me give you a little breather. Go for it. Yeah, so... This movie is actually based on real events. So while the movie was based on William Peter Blatty's book called The Exorcist, the book was inspired by a 1949 case of demonic possession and exorcism that Blatty had heard about while he was a student in the class of 1950 at Georgetown University. It was of a teenager with pseudonym Roland Doe. Recent investigative research by freelance journalist Mark Opsancic indicates that this was the real 1949 exorcism of a young boy from a cottage from Cottage City, Maryland, whom Opsachnik refers to using the pseudonyms Robbie Mannheim and Roland Doe. The boy was sent to his relative's home in Roanoke Drive in St. Louis, where most of the exorcism took place. I like how it's like, it's just a normal neighborhood. It's not like in the middle of nowhere it's not like some random like little cottage it's like amongst a neighborhood that's what also makes the movie super scary yeah just in the cities in dc yeah the devil's face apparently appeared on the boy's leg before the voice of saint michael came out of the boy's mouth now for the exorcism according to author thomas b allen jesuit priest father walter o'halloran was one of the last surviving eyewitnesses of the events and participated in the exorcism Allen wrote that a diary kept by attending priest Father Raymond Bishop detailed the exorcism performed on the pseudonymously identified Roland Doe, a.k.a. Robbie. Speaking in 2013, Allen emphasized that definitive proof that the boy, known only as Robbie, was possessed by malevolent spirits is unattainable. According to Allen, Halloran also expressed his skepticism about potential paranormal events before his death. When asked in an interview to make a statement verifying that the boy had actually been demonically possessed, Halloran responded saying, No, I can't go on record. I never made an absolute statement about the things because I didn't feel I was qualified. Now, Roland was born into a German Lutheran family. During the 1940s, the family lived in Cottage City, Maryland. According to Allen, Roland was an only child and depended upon adults in his household for playmates, primarily his aunt Harriet. His aunt, who was a spiritualist, introduced Roland to the Ouija board when he expressed interest in it. If you remember, the Ouija board is subtly introduced in the film when Reagan shows it to his to her mother. Oh, yeah, that's right. According to Thomas B. Allen, after Aunt Harriet's death, the family experienced strange noises, furniture moving of its own accord, and ordinary objects such as vases flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. The family turned to their Lutheran, Lutheran pastor, <laughs> Lutheran pastor, Luther Miles Schultz for help. Long interested in parapsychology, Schultz arranged for the boy to spend a night in his home in order to observe him. The parapsychologist J.B. Ryan learned that Schultz claimed he witnessed household objects and furniture seemingly moving by themselves. Ryan wondered if Schultz unconsciously exaggerated some of the facts. Schultz advised the boy's parents to see a Catholic priest. Now, according to traditional story, the boy then underwent a number of exorcisms. Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at Georgetown University Hospital, a Jesuit institution. Now, during the exorcism, the boy allegedly slipped one of his hands out of the restraints, broke a, bre a bed spring from under the mattress, and used it as an impromptu weapon, slashing the priest's arms and resulting in the exorcism ritual being halted. The family traveled to St. Louis, where Roland's cousin contacted one of his professors at St. Louis University, Bishop, who in turn spoke to William S. Bowdern, 
an associate of College Church. Together, both priests visited Roland in his relative's home, where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, and the boy speaking in a guttural voice and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Bodern was granted permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism. The exorcism took place at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. St. Louis, South St. Louis, Missouri, which was changed to South, South City Hospital. Before the next exorcism ritual began, another priest, Walter Halloran, was called to the psychiatric, psychiatric wing of the hospital where he was asked to assist Bowdern. William Van Rue, a third Jesuit priest, was also there to assist. Halloran stated that during this scene, words such as evil and hell, along with other various marks, appeared on the teenager's body. Allegedly, during the litany of saints' proportion of the exorcism ritual, the boy's mattress began to shake. Moreover, Roland broke Halloran's nose during the process. Halloran told reporter that after the rite was over, the anonymous subject of the exorcism went on to lead a rather ordinary life. So the truth to this story in his 1993 book, Possessed, the, story, the True Story of an Exorcism, author Thomas B. Allen offered the consensus of today's experts that Robbie was just a deeply disturbed boy, nothing supernatural about him. And Arthur Mark Ospachnik questioned what many of the supernatural claims associated with this story, proposing that Roland Doe was simply a spoiled, disturbed bully who threw deliberate tantrums to get attention or to get out of school. Opsatnik reports that Halloran, who was present at the exorcism, never heard the boy's voice change, and he thought the boy merely mimicked Latin words he had heard clergymen say rather than gaining a sudden ability to actually speak Latin. Opsatnik reported that when marks were found on the boy's body, Halloran failed to check the boy's fingernails to see if he had made the marks himself. Opsatnik also questioned the story of Hughes' attempt to exercise the boy and his subsequent injury, saying he could find no evidence that such an episode episode had actually occurred. Do you believe in exorcisms? Do you think people get possessed? I'm not sure I do. I don't think I believe in exorcisms. I do think that the mind is extremely powerful. and It sounds it, like a creative kid that just wanted attention. Yeah, and it, it, the mind can even... even it, it can even happen um, out of someone's control, the mind taking over the body and... You know, delusions, schizophrenia, there are lots of mental disturbances that can happen within the mind that can change your perspective. And I think my guess would be that the the boy was suffering from schizophrenia and it happened to coincide with themes of religion. Or maybe not necessarily schizophrenia, he just really wants attention and yeah. really wants and yeah. just made this theatrical performance, basically. That's possible, too. I, I think that's 100% a possibility. I personally, when it comes to ghosts demonic possession anything like that i gotta see it for myself yeah the thing with demons and angels is i kind of can't understand how there could be like a different plane of existence for them and how they can come into our have you ever seen constantine's documentary (laughs) constantine john constantine so i actually i don't i don't believe in uh i don't believe in demons or angels i don't believe in ghosts or supernatural forces sorry sorry eileen (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and although i know there's a lot of people that we're friends with that that i uh, totally believe in that i stuff. gotta see it for myself Every, everyone's welcome to their opinion but personally me i don't believe any of that stuff exists but i love ghost stories oh They're yeah so i love the movies a hundred percent but i love the i've never the tv shows are always funny like what's that what's that <laughs> oh, like the paranormal yeah. tv <laughs> like the re- reality ones yeah nothing's ever found <laughs> You would think that after like decades and decades of these people. Still nothing. nothing. Anyways, let's move on to tragic deaths that occurred either during production or related to the production of The Exorcist. Starting with Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings in the film. Now, Burke Dennings in the movie was the film director working on a film in Washington, D.C., where the film is set with Chris McNeil, the, the mother in the movie. The film was wrapping up. As he shot the final scene at Georgetown University, which also happened to be where Damien Karras worked the priest in the movie. The yeah, exorcist. the protest scene. And the movie death of Burke Dennings. Again, if you haven't seen this movie, The Exorcist, sorry. First spoiler. We're 50 minutes yeah, in, though. Yeah, spoiling right now. Well, babysitting Reagan. Again, they have a very friendly relationship. There's even parts in this movie that maybe you assume that maybe they potentially had a romantic relationship or could have a romantic relationship. 
Uh, while Burke is babysitting young Reagan, he is killed by Reagan while she is possessed by Pazuzu, who uses superhuman strength to break Denning's neck, turning his head completely around and throwing him from Reagan's bedroom window. His body then rolled onto the steps linking M Street to Prospect Street. Police did not consider any suspects. Rather, they chalked up Burke's death to an accident. It was also the last film that Jack McGowan ever appeared in shortly after completing work on The Exorcist while in New York City, appearing as Fluther in Sean, O'Ca- Sean O'Casey's The Plough and The Stars. McGowan died at 54 from influenza after complications resulting from the London flu epidemic. I saw this um, crazy um, old silent horror film on Criterion Channel, and it had uh, the same statue of Pazuzu. Of Pazuzu? With um, the, the two wings, the exact same statue, with the hand up and like the, the wings on the back of him and like the lion face. And it's, uh, it, the movie's amazing. It's really incredible. And What's it called? I'm trying to, I'm looking it up right now. I can't, it's like, it's one word. Pazuzu. <laughs> no, it's about um. A, it's a, actually a collective of little horror shorts, both uh, fiction and uh, it's called Haxon. It's uh. Witch- How do you spell that? H a x a n. Witchcraft through the ages. It's like this anthology movie that's both nonfiction and fiction, where they describe, they show um, witchcraft and demonic stories throughout history um, from different cultures, and then they also have little scenes to play out. Um, different things. Is it and like documentary based as well as fiction, or is it like combined? Yeah, exactly. And it's all silent, but it's really cool. It's really oh, cool. It's so cool. I guess some some out. of the craziest special effects makeup I've ever seen. Honestly, I was like, I can't believe this was made in 1922. It's insane. But it had that Pazuzu statue, and it was like a. It's like an old representation of a of that demon. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's where they got that. The it's, that's how they designed it for this movie from that same exact kind of design of that demon. Oh no way! I didn't know that. Yeah, very cool. I saw it and I was like, "Hey, The Exorcist!" It was super <laughs> cool. <laughs> now there was another actor who passed away. That was in The Exorcist. Passed away close to production. So Vasiliki Malaros played Mary Caris, Father Caris's mother, in this film. This is her only acting credit. She was actually discovered, I believe, at a diner. And they asked her to be in the movie. Now, her movie death occurs when, you know, Damien's worried for his mother, but is unable to care for her due to distance and financial constraints. Eventually, Mary is admitted to Bellevue Hospital. And though Damien allows her to be released and sent home, she later dies due to a worsened state from her edema, leaving Damien guilty and grieving. And then we obviously have the iconic scenes with Pazuzu, who's possessing, uh, what's her, <laughs> Reagan. Uh, Reagan. You know, saying that your mother's in hell right now with me. And also his nightmares of his mom. Now, Vesaliki's real death occurred February 9th, 1973, right around the time the movie was released. She died at the age of 89 of natural causes. Okay, so 89's old. That's so. pretty, yeah, yeah that's, natural causes. Yeah, I don't see anything suspicious about that. Yeah, but you know, it's unfortunate that she passed away. <laughs> Sad. Another death is Linda Blair's grandfather, Max von Sydow's brother, and night watchman, and a special effects expert also lost their lives during the production, during and after the production of The Exorcist. So that's three deaths. So three deaths. Now there's also the story of the family murder slash suicide of John Markle. This is crazy. Yeah, so this-, this is related to the movie with one of the main stars. Now Academy Award winning actress Mercedes McCambridge provided the demon's voice in The Exorcist. McCambridge reportedly achieved her hideous demon voice by chain smoking and forcing herself to vomit on raw egg mixture. That's, it worked. She struck. She was struck by tragedy in 1987 when her son John Merkel murdered his wife and children before killing himself while donning a scary, wrinkled Halloween mask in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, this wasn't like a Mike Myers mask. It was just a creepy-looking old man mask. According to Encyclopedia of Arkansas.net, while the murders of Fuller mur- uh, after the murders, a Fuller story emerged. When questions had been raised about some of his accounts, Markle had been put on medical leave by Stevens in early October while the accounts were reviewed. That investigation, which led to the discovery of an extensive embezzlement scheme involving accounts belonging to his mother, resulted in Markle being fired on Friday, November 13th, 1987. Friday the 13th, he was fired. Whoa. It appears that the murder-suicide that took place 
three days later was not a spontaneous act. For example, the film Nightmare on Elm Street was in the Holmes VCR and multiple guns were used in the murders. Marco had voided his previous will only days before, replacing it with a handwritten one that made no provisions for his wife or children, which indicated that his own death was to follow theirs. Markle had, in fact, left a suicide note that acknowledged that he had murdered his wife and daughters. He dated the note November 16th, 1987, with a time of 2.30 a.m., which means that he had written it before he called his attorney, Richard Lawrence, at 4 a.m., barely 15 minutes before his own body was found. In the call, Markle abruptly asked Lawrence to come to the house and then hung up. Lawrence called back twice but was unable to reach his client. At that point, he called the police. Investigators also discovered a long letter written by Markle to his mother. The letter, the letter made clear that she would, had no longer, <clears throat> the letter made clear that she had no knowledge of his business dealings. But it was also detailed a long list of bitter filial grievances directed toward an absent, inattentive, and uncaring parent. Mercedes McCambridge refused to comment publicly about the incident, and she, Stevens and Corp, and many of Markle's former account holders became embroiled in litigation that dragged on to the 1990s. Police investigators would conclude from blood analysis that Markle wore the rubber mask as he shot Amy four times, and probably while he put five bullets in Suzanne and three in Chris. A couple of hours later, he phoned Lawrence and then shot himself in both sides of his head simultaneously, using the revolvers that were found with his body. That no one in the neighborhood reported hearing more than a dozen gunshots was explained by a thunderstorm taking place. Lab tests would reveal that all four Markles had trace amounts of Elevil, an antidepressant that causes drowsiness in their systems. John and Chris both tested positive for Valium and marijuana, and John had ingested an appetite suppressant and a small quantity of alcohol. Horrific, tragic incident. Hmm. My goodness. Absolutely terrible. Told you we get a little true crime in here. Now, there are three final occurrences that relate to The Exorcist being a cursed production. The first was a near-fatal accident during production of John Jason Willer, who plays Father Karras's son. Jason Miller. Oh, Miller, I'm sorry. Miller. Miller. Jason Miller plays Father Karras. His son, young boy, was struck. Maybe it was Jason Patrick. Maybe. Was, uh, which one's the, the older one? It's the youngest of the kids. So yeah. the youngest one was, or the old, it might have been the oldest one. Um, was hit by a motorcycle during production of the film in not like on set, but like mm-hmm. while they were filming and almost passed away from the motorcycle. Wow, accident. that's crazy. Now, finally, we have two major injuries that occurred during the filming of The Exorcist. The first was Ellen Burstein. Ellen Burstein played Reagan's mother who would only agree to do the film if her line, I believe in the devil, was taken out of the film. Unfortunately, that did not protect her from the alleged curse. During a scene where her possessed daughter threw her from the bed, her harness was pulled too harshly and she sustained a permanent injury to her back. The scream that came from the pain was so horrifying that it was actually used in the final cut of the film from Ellen Burstein. In 2018, though, Burstein said that she's impressed with Friedkin's work despite on-set having an injury and maybe not living working in the best work environments. He does, to quote her, he does sometimes go a little further than is safe for the actors, and I would caution him to hold back on that, but he was a great director, and I loved working with him. However, she is still dealing with the ramifications of that stunt gone wrong. Damn. And then finally, we have an injury suffered by Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, the young girl in the film possessed by Pazuzu, she suffered a major back injury. So the injury occurred in the scene where Reagan is violently thrashed around her room by the demon possessing her body. This effect was achieved by rigging the actress Linda Blair to the bed, which moved mechanically in one take. She was attached with different lacings and straps, kind of like Ellen Burstein was when in the scene she was pulled. And this is all done practically. You know, this is no CGI. This is 1973. And Linda Blair explained in episode one of Cursed Films that one of the loose one of the laces came loose that she was attached to, and she's crying and screaming and she's in pain. But everyone thinks she's just acting up a storm because they're filming the scene. It fractured her lower spine. 
they didn't send her to the doctor. And apparently it's the footage that's used in the movie as well. That makes sense because the the bending of her body is so extreme. It looks like it's like not even a real person, but it was really her. Now, Blair's fractured spine has had long-term ramifications, just like Ellen Burstein. According to USA Today, following another onset injury involving a motorcycle and multiple falls from horses, Blair developed scoliosis. The actress has sought both conventional and alternative medical treatments to help her condition. Luckily, she's been able to find relief. Although she could certainly do without the lifelong repercussions of her injury, Blair does believe that the exorcist made her into the person she is today. Wow. So that wraps up every crazy, strange, true crime, horrific, tragic incident involved around the production and release of The Exorcist. It's quite a lot, and it's really like when you look at all these stories and odd occurrences and violent deaths and unquestionable deaths, I mean, it really adds up to something very strange and something kind of like inexplicable that had never happened before in a movie set. I mean, things happen, but like all these things happening around or connected to the people from this one movie. And this of one this production. movie in particular. It's, it's not like this, it's like a comedy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's It makes you think twice about things sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Just even like though, the movie does. Even though obviously you could just say that none of these things are connected, yeah. which is totally a belief as well. But, you know, I, it's, it's interesting to... Look at films like this that have all these odd occurrences. Are they cursed films? Are there really cursed productions? Are people really cursed? It's it's nuts. It's very spooky. Now, very spooky. Thank you for tuning into this. Thank you for tuning into this Halloween special from Raiders of Lost Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun for us to do this. I liked it. It, it changed up the pace. I think maybe we'll get more theatrical. A little true crime. A little more there. theatrical with episodes. Who knows going down the road. But that was a lot of fun. We hope you all have a, a great Halloween. Stay safe. Have fun. Eat lots of candy. Send us, send us costumes too. Yeah, send us. Put uh, us in your story. Yeah. Tag us. So we can check them out. We'll share them on the Instagram. Can't wait to see them. Take care, everybody. See ya. <laughs> this episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons: Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John A. Graz, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam, and Lauren Smertz. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.